Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now this is a story all about how their lives got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute just sit right there to tell you all about modernist existential despair. Greetings, attic wives and lit witches, and all our friends and towns, just like Grover's Corners, and welcome to Fuckboys of Literature. I'm your host, Emily Edwards. After many a conversation about Faulkner and Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Elliot and Lawrence, you know my stance on the post-Great War years of literature. I don't blame people who have been through global trauma for being shitheels, but that's still not an excuse for being a shitheel. A good takeaway for all of us living through these modern times as well. But today's text is something else. Maybe the stage brought out the best in them. Who knows? Everyone with me today is a voice you will remember from last year's episode on A Midsummer Night's Dream, my dear friend who I've been internet friends with for a very, very long time, AJ Fjordman. How the hell are you? I'm great. It's a Monday. It's a Monday. It's a, it is Yay. the Mondayest of Mondays that we are recording. And it's, 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 it's kind of poopy, but we're going to make a go of it. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Because, okay, so I've been reading a lot of things that are um, kids' books and like YA books and things like that. And sure. Our Town is like the number one play read in high school. And it's oh, absolutely. Darling. It's, it's charming. And I'm it's like, precious. fuck, what are we going to talk about? Because it's just well, darling. I can ruin it if you want. Yeah, um, might as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to remember. I think I read it in... I don't know, probably like 10th or 11th grade. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely had to read it in college. I was a I was a theater major my freshman year. I'm sure we read it then. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I gave it a quick reread before this. Yeah, so exactly. Burst. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's about, as I said to you before we started recording, it's a very middle America, but it's, you know, also like the early 1900s. It's... It's just it Thornton. spans a lot of life in three acts. It's adorable. Yeah. yeah, it's Thornton Wilder just being really depressive and musing about yeah. life and how yeah. much it generally sucks. But let's it's get fine. attached to these people and then kill them. Most of them, like Most, holy I crap, know. they're all gone. Have you ever thought? Well, I don't know. Like, have you thought about the fact that this play was written in? Like the 30s or 40s, I forget which, I apologize. Yeah. And God, my glasses are filthy. Um, sorry, everyone who can't see me. Um, <laughs> have you ever, have you thought about the fact that like for, for this play to have been written in the 30s or 40s, whenever it was, I'm, I'm Googling it as I'm talking to you. It looks like it was 1938. Yeah. Um, this is kind of like unusual, like the format of the play. Yeah. Yeah. Forward thinking or you know, it's just like, I'm sure no one else was writing 
it's it's a play within a play, but it's not. Yeah, super minimal. Like I I have been on record many times about saying how much I fucking hate the modernists and just how like everything in the interwar periods was just like a parade of anti-Semitism and terribleness. Yeah, and, yeah. And this is a super modernist play. Like yeah. like literally the narrator is this just in case you are the one American who has not read our our town, or if you are one of many international readers or listeners, our town is like the quintessential American play. It follows two families in New Hampshire, and basically from like childhood to te- to adulthood of the the kids of the two main families. And uh, famously, the narrator is referred to as the stage manager, and he's the person who literally sets up and breaks down the sets, which are super minimal. He provides commentary on everything. His stage manager was famously played by Spalding Gray for a really, really long time. That's right. He also plays a couple menial parts in the play as well, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, it's a fascinating play in like the history of drama and drama yeah. and 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 staging it and stuff like that. And um it's bleak as all hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like it, um, it go ahead, I'm sorry. It almost feels like I don't know, I can't help but think when you've got like two families, although these two families got along, it immediately reminds me of kind of a Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. thing with two houses and two children that fall in love. Although this is a much more pleasant situation, it still ends in death. Yeah. Like and despair. So I guess maybe there's some kind of symbolism in that, like we all die eventually. I don't know. You just said it was dark. It is dark. It's super so. dark. And you know, it's funny because like it's always talked about about like a, as a super like innocuous play. Like everybody really remembers not, it as just being like, oh, that boring play where nothing happens. And it's like literally everything happens. Everything happens right. that you could imagine that happens to just regular folk. Right. And I think it's interesting that we all read this in high school because I'm not sure that as a 15, 16 year old reading this, I really, I probably thought it was innocuous and boring and stupid. And I'm sure my teacher tried to burn into me that it was symbolic and had motifs, but I'm not sure my teenage adolescent brain was equipped to really understand and grasp that. Yeah, And I was a good student and I was in theater and I read a lot of stuff, but I don't think it was until I was older or even as recent as giving it a reread in order to do this with you. Like I suddenly was not like mind blown, but I was suddenly like struck with the realization that it's not that ordinary. It is like, it is kind of got a lot of symbolism in it. So yeah, I guess like that Thornton Wilder really knew what he was doing. He really knew what he, what he was doing. He won a couple of Pulitzer prizes and a, oh. and a national book award. And well, I knew you're going to do that soon. Yeah. <laughs> not with my mystery novel. That's not going <laughs> to happen. Um, as much as I'd love everybody to buy in relieving. Yeah. Please. But um, no, but like, you know, I didn't know anything about him before I started doing this. And of course, like, again, as soon as I realized that he was like a straight up modernist friend with Gertrude Stein, I was like Googling going like, oh, how bad of an anti-Semite right. was he? Surprisingly not. Um, just- no, because, you know, as a Jewish person, I will tell you, we actually, I always joke with my mother, we keep um, secret lists in our heads of everyone who hates Jews. Yeah. Like, I always joke with my mother, like, we'll be at like, you know, we'll drive by Carl's Jr. And my mom will be like, Carl's Karcher was a anti-Semite. And I'm like, 
I didn't How know that. How do you that. know that? And she's like, I just do. It's and so, just like, the list. Whole, there's a whole bunch of people like that. And so luckily never a Thornton Wilder mention on that mental list that my mother has kept throughout our lives. I appreciate that. It, you know, your that. mom could have saved me a Google and a couple of weird <laughs> New Yorker articles that I read. But like, oh, but seriously, it, it is like, I stopped, like, I didn't do that up until like a certain point. And then I realized like, oh, in the literary history of things, like you seriously have to know that context before you start discussing anybody's works. Cause like 90% of the time it's about how much they hate Jewish people. And then you just feel like an asshole. Cause you didn't bring it up in the show. Um, and rightfully so, but this time not explicit, which, um, he doesn't like Polish people because somehow in our town, the town is like of 2000 people, but there's a Polish quarter and they don't go there. (laughs) I mean, okay. Like, like it's so indicative of America that in a town town drunk, always a a town drunk. They hate the town drunk, and they just talk about how like the polite thing to do is not mention it because they are Yankees. And then there's the Polish quarter where they don't go unless a woman is giving birth in her kitchen, and it's like, oh, thanks, America. (laughs) Uh, How do you suppose that phone call goes? I know I'm a Polak. But I'm giving birth in my kitchen. Would you please come over? And Dr. Webb is like, be right there. And he has to turn to his wife and say, I got to go to the Polish section. And she's probably like, oh, they're Catholics. We don't like them. (laughs) And like a small percentage of them are Jews. So like, Uh uh uh-oh. I know. And I guess we're like making jokes, obviously. But um, I guess it is kind of like. I mean, like I said, I'm Jewish, so I don't totally know the history and everything, but it is my understanding that among all the various facets of Christianity, they don't get along necessarily within no, those no, different no, no. sects, yeah, yeah. right? I, I grew up Polish Catholic, so my grandmother's oh, super okay. Polish. And so like this taking place in New Hampshire and then being like the Polacks get their own quarter. It's like, yeah, no, I get it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so like i am joking about it but at the same time like this is the deeply unsettling and terrible part of america everybody and like thornton wilder just like throws a couple lines in there and you're supposed to just be like oh that makes sense but it doesn't there's no reason why this is happening especially because this was written i mean i think he probably spent some time writing it right so Mm -hmm. it was written after world war one kind of heading into world war two exactly it kind of makes you wonder if that informed any of the content i'm sure it did yeah obviously it was influenced by the times so it's surprising it was surprising to me how many footnotes the stage manager gives of like how like one of the kids was like had a super promising future but he died in the first world war and there it goes you know spoiler spoiler alert is the stage manager throws out a lot of spoilers as like an omniscient god character (laughs) yeah yeah well the white man knows everything he does he can build you a he can build you a set before your very eyes and tell you your future and how you're gonna die in childbirth because oh god yeah yeah Boy, boy, is that sad, right? Like, it's so sad. It's like the third act is when Thornton Wilder pulls out all the stops and he's like, cracks his knuckles and he's just like, here, I'm going to throw every modernist thing I can do at you, including a woman having a breakdown beyond the grave. Yeah, like you think it's sad that she died? Nuh-uh, we're going to send her back in time so she can really feel shitty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, nothing um, positive happens. No. But I guess I mean maybe that's maybe that's the point, right? Like life sucks and we don't take advantage we don't take it or we do, we take it for granted. Yeah. Um so life sucks, we take it for granted. Don't be Emily. Yeah. And have a breakdown after you die. I don't, you know, I'm not being eloquent. No, it, it's so funny because like again, like I I had not actually, I somehow managed to make it through a literature degree in high school and never had read this play before. And I was just kind of like, I'm going to have to do it because it's like the most famous play, American play of all time. So like, let's discuss it. And of course, while I'm reading it, I'm going like, none of these people are bad. None of them fit our archetype of a fuck boy. So what am I going to do? And then you kind of realize by the end of it, just like, God is shitty. And like, that's the end of it. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I didn't realize you had never read it before. No. That's funny to me. Yeah. I had Especially to- as a lit major. Yeah. I specifically took a playwriting class in college and I read a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, just oh. like the usual, like, oh, waiting for Godot, you know, um, like, uh, talk about modernism right there. I mean, we did, um, Twilight, Los- Twilight Los Angeles by Anna Devere Smith, which was just an absolutely brilliant play. Oh, like, I've never read that one. Oh, she came to my class. Oh, talk about oh, how just cool the that? coolest woman that's ever lived. Wow. And we managed to make it through like all of the big canonical, like, you know, um, American playwrights specifically yeah. and somehow managed to skip Thornton Wilder, who was just like sure. the guy. And yeah, and I had never read this before. And um, I am obsessed with how peaceful it made me feel but even though it's just like really 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 bleak yeah yeah I mean look it's it's bleak and it's but it's also like somehow at the same time it's also very pleasant and quaint um yeah I mean look like in the first act I think you've got uh Emily and George right Mm -hmm. it's George. George you know literally she, they marry the boy and the girl next door you know they walk hand in hand skipping off to school every day yeah. and they talk in their windows and it's very adorable and she helps him with algebra because she's yeah. the smartest girl in class and then it turns out that there's no future if you're just the smartest girl in class you just get to graduate right, high school and marry the baseball player yeah yeah and then like i don't know even though even the way she died is like she died in service, like giving birth to the next generation. She didn't die from like, I mean, they point out that the other guy killed himself. They, yeah. You know, she didn't die from like sickness or doing, it didn't, wasn't karma coming back to bite her in the butt. Mm-mm. It was like giving birth to their beloved twins. Yeah. Like, yeah. Was it twins? I think it, they had an older boy and then she was giving birth to another child. Oh, I'm thinking and about it, the twins delivered in act one. They yeah. Were, yes. But yeah, I mean, she even like the way she gave birth was pleasant is not the right word, but it wasn't like it was appropriate. Yes, it was appropriate. And it wasn't like this devastating, prolonged illness that it wasn't controversial. She just died giving birth to baby. Yeah, which our women are wont to do in the 1930s and prior. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And and it's so funny because Thornton Wilder, I had no idea. I, I mean, I probably could have surmised this given the era, but uh, uh, very gay, apparently. I had no idea. Yeah, I, I had heard that rumor. I, I, probably like gay, but asexual or aromantic. So like he had affairs, but they weren't long term uh, you know, uh, just uh, alternative lifestyle as the 90s would have politely called it. I'm doing air quotes to know that I would not call it that now. Um, and, uh, and yet his play is so dedicated to norms. And I'm like, why? Well, I guess it's like seeped in irony in that way. Like maybe that was a deliberate choice. I mean, he couldn't write about his lifestyle so he went in the extreme other direction yeah maybe it was like personal irony for him maybe he got some kind of pleasure out of it I don't know yeah he's he's such a fascinating dude um like he he signed up for the army like for world war ii when he was like 45 like like, he's just a really interesting yeah as you do because why at that point he's like super rich like because our town had already been a huge hit yeah i he's just a really really interesting dude he he went to the thornton the thornton school in ojai the big boys boarding school up there oh okay Um, yeah like super privileged life his dad was a uh uh, an ambassador to china he lived in china when he was a kid like super worldly always broke um and and yet like He's so famous for being so steeped in Americana and this this play that is so it's going to live and die by gender norms in a way that I just really, really wasn't anticipating for something that was written yeah. in the 1930s. Wouldn't it be cool if somebody did like a West, you know how like Tony Kushner updated West Side Story mm-hmm. for the recent reboot? I think it would be really cool for somebody to do that with Our Town. And make it just a hair more timely. Like, yeah. I don't know exactly how that's accomplished. I'd have to think about it. But I don't know if you throw like, like, let's say you make the the webs two dads. Yeah. And, um, you know, instead of delivering the paper 
I don't know. But like, I think there's a way to, to do it. I think it would be interesting to see how somebody would update it to the present day. I think that could be cool. Yeah. Why like, don't you do it, Emily? I'm thinking about it. Like what? Oh, perfect. Would, yeah. Like what? You know, I'm looking at, I, I always read on my Kindle so I have easier access to notes and things like that. And just Same. it it reminds, there's a section early on page 18 of the play where Mr. and Mrs. Uh, oh, Mrs. Gibbs and Mrs. Webb, the two housewives who live across the way from each yeah. other having a conversation. Over their garden. Over their garden. One, they have almost the exact same garden, but one grows sunflowers in addition to like their sweet peas or something. And you're Adorable. just, and, and. Now that I live again in small town New England, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty freaking accurate. Actually, like, there's no deviation from the norm, and in in it almost hurts how well Thornton Wilder managed to cut small town America like down to size. Yeah, like you you've lived in LA your whole entire life, haven't you? Well, I have. I went away for college, but yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. So there's like a four year gap in there, but yeah, I mean. I've lived in LA. I haven't lived in like the city proper of LA. I've lived in the outlying suburbs, but yeah, LA. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you notice a lot of like the, any like trickle down of like small town America into, into living well, in the big city? When we were 12, um, it's interesting, right? So I, I grew up in LA in the Valley as it is and in the suburbs. And I went to college in Tucson first, mm-hmm. which is, you know, talk about innocuous. And then um, I went to NYU, which is polar opposite of all these things. And I also spent a semester in Italy, which was even more different. But I will say growing up here in LA, so when we were 12, when I was, we, when I was 12, we moved to a suburb called Agora Hills, Mm -hmm. um, which, and like, you know, we moved into a house that was part of a track where there were three different models and you picked out your model and yep. you did what you wanted with it. Um, so like every third house was the same as the one prior, you know, and it was very like probably as close to middle America as LA right. can get. Like we all walked to school cause the school oh. was right up the street. Yeah. And um, you know, and then once we could drive, like we all carpooled and during lunch we sat at our cars and, you know, talked about gossip. Like it was, you know, it was a little middle America, like, um, without probably like a farming element. Right. To it. But, um, you know, there was woodshop class and photography class and I was in the drama club and on the school paper and that is yeah. Annoying. So like it was a little bit of that vibe. And I will say we called it. So Agora's nickname is the bubble because, oh. and it still is by the way, like growing up there, you become very, sheltered. Um, I know that like my parents, for example, even though I had a driver's license and my own car, um, I never really went past, you know, Woodland Hills, which was like 10 minutes South. Yeah. Um, I think the first time I went to the Hollywood bowl, I was in my late twenties. So like I never drove downtown. I never really went anywhere. So like Agora or a town or the bubble, it's very contained, very sheltered. So yeah, I mean really like very, like LA's version yeah. of middle America. When the riots happened, we all, it seemed very far away. Right. You um, don't go to that part of town. So it yeah, you know, like- um, we would hear songs like, you know, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg singing about the LBC. And mm-hmm. we were like, Oh, what a foreign land. And yes. it's really like 30 <laughs> miles down the road or 
what have you. So yeah, you know, very sheltered. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but no, I was just wondering. Yeah. I mean, look, I met my first gay person in high school, but nobody knew he was gay. Nobody talked about it. Right. Um, you know, I went to a school full of white kids. There were literally three black people and I can tell you all of their names. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, no, I, I think it's just some, it's something that people, um, kind of focus on a lot of just being like, oh, you know, the greater LA area, the greater New York city area, like it's these like huge melting pots of diversity and, you know, and if depending on where you're from sin and like, you just, you know, have this, no, this no concept of what it's like to live in a community. If you're from these areas and I'm like, I'm living in the town next to my hometown right now. And it's 60 miles outside of New York city. And it's like, none of that is accurate actually. Well, and even like, so my dad was from Queens, right? Yeah. To LA when he was 13 or 14, something like that. But even like when I, when I, it became clear, I was transferring to NYU and moving to the West Village in Manhattan. You know, my dad gave me this long list of rules about living in New York, right? Like don't make eye contact on the subway. Yeah. Don't stop and ask for directions. Don't give people directions. Like all these all these protective shields. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure he had the best of intentions. Obviously, he grew up in New York in a very different time Mm -hmm. than I was living there. But I never found any of that to be true. Actually, I none of the stereotypes seem to be accurate for me. Um, If I needed directions, people were always happy to give it and just ask (laughs) on the subway, you're almost like this built in little community. Because when the crazy person comes on to like, Mm-hmm. sing to you and ask for money we're all looking at each other like are you giving money yeah. I'm not giving money like someone's giving a buck I gotta scrounge something up like yeah yeah, yeah. I, I never found any of that stuff to be true I actually um for it being a very urban environment I actually found it slightly communal so there's that especially living in the West Village which is its whole other yeah it's whole thing it's, it's whole boys town and all that stuff but um yeah, I mean, I think like you could even, I wonder also like if you could apply vibes of small town America anywhere. I don't know. I think you can personally. Like I really do. I really don't think it's as unique. I think humans as a collective are, you know, a community, are community creatures and that we yeah. all, almost always strive to create some sort of camaraderie with the, with the people around us. And I think it's the I think it's aberrant to human nature to actually want to create a separation between you and the people who live around you. Yeah, I mean, and and I'm sorry, I cut you off. Talk about modern times. I mean, I think the one thing the pandemic did for a lot of people is make us realize that human beings are not designed to be isolated. Exactly. Like, even even someone like me who tends to be... um, and I'm like an extroverted introvert, right? And I actually very much enjoy being home by myself and getting to do whatever I want to do. Mm -hmm. So at first I was making all these jokes like, oh, I finally have a really good reason to stay home. This was built for me. Yes. But then like, you know, after a while you start to realize like, oh, this is not sustainable. No. So (sighs) I think that it made us all as a global community, even acutely aware that, oh, we're not designed to live this way. Yeah. And I, I actually think that like one of the reasons why, like, 
I mean, I'm a pretty lefty leaning person of just like, I don't understand people who want to draw lines because I don't think that is actually in human nature. I think the human nature is to want to wave to your neighbors when you're getting the mail and then like chit chat about the kids or the dogs or whatever, and then be like, cool, let me know if you need anything. And they'll be like, sure. And and that's, you know, no matter what your neighbor looks like, I think it's normal to want to do that. And yeah, my- I mean, I always say hi to my neighbors. I know the guys who live right next door. Um, I know the pe- I live in an apartment complex, and I know the people in the front office of my building. And yeah, um, you know, even when I used to work in office buildings, I always learned the name of the security guards and the mailman, exactly. mailroom guy. Um, that's how I'm wired. Uh, funnily enough, so my boyfriend lives in New Jersey, and he lives in like this northernmost tip of New Jersey, and he is actually very isolated. He basically lives in like the woods. Yeah. Um, and when he comes here to stay with me for a while, he's always like, God, you just know everybody. And I'm like, <laughs> well, it's not like, I mean, yeah, I guess I do. But to me, that's not unusual. I don't think that's like, unusual either. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I, I live in the sticks at the moment. All I can see out my, my window looking over to my right is the woods. And it's yeah. like, and I've still met all my neighbors. I know everybody's deal. I know what their kids do. Like, and it's just yeah. been here two weeks. It's part of being yeah. in a community. And yeah. to act as though that is unique to small town or small or or isolated living i think is just like bonkers you know i think yeah. i think one of the reasons why our town is taught like from inner city schools to to the the regional high schools in the middle of, of bumpkinsville nowhere is because like you always know what your neighbor across the street is doing and like what they're talking about and yeah. what what the concerns of their household are like yeah. it's normal oh. God, when I was growing so my parents' bedroom was on the uh, second floor in the front of the house, which is unusual because usually the master bedroom's in the back of the house, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, it was in the front. And right in the front of the room, there were just two large windows. And I remember we used to laugh because it could be like two in the morning, dead silent, everybody asleep. But if a car pulled up at the house across the street, my dad was like at the window, like, what's going <laughs> on? And we we it was hilarious and like I mean all day was like that but it was especially funny at two in the morning when yeah. you know dead if I got up and neighborhood watch going, like, I got up and happened to be like going to the bathroom or something I'd look down the hall and there'd be my dad would be like peeking through the window <laughs> and I'm like what are you doing and he's like I heard a car and I'm like yeah we live on a street we're what. If you'd like to listen to the remainder of this episode, I ask you to become a patron of Fuckboys of Lit on patreon.com slash fuckboysoflit, or find the link in our show notes. Patrons get full-length episodes each and every week, and starting up again soon, patrons of the $5 and up tier get access to weekly bonus episodes and tons of extra content. If you can't be a patron, don't worry. Be sure to tell all your friends about us, online and offline, of course, and rate and review FBOL wherever you listen. I'm Emily Edwards, and have a good one.